We've been studying the parables of Jesus in our series called The Teacher's Twist. Jesus told stories with plot twists that surprised and shocked his original hearers. His stories were told to convert people to a new way of thinking about faith, about God, about life, and about their neighbors. And they can get under our skin and do the same for us if we can hear them with fresh ears. So listen to the story that Jesus told about Lazarus and the rich man. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, child, Remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus and like men are evil things, but now he is comforted, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, then father, I beg you to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they will not come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, no father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our scripture is a part of the section of the Gospel of Luke that has to do with the right treatment of wealth and the right treatment of the poor. And the Pharisees were the original intended audience. Oh good, you and I might think, I'm not a Pharisee, but in a way, We are. We are rule-following, well-to-do folk who try to do everything right, and we think of ourselves as among the best of society. And so did the Pharisees. In our passage, the Pharisees were listening very carefully to everything Jesus said because they were actively trying to catch him in some damning statement. They felt their own grip on power in the community was being threatened by Jesus and his followers. They thought of him as a radical and an iconoclast. So Jesus looked at them and began to tell them stories. There are two parables he tells in Luke 16, and both of them begin with the words, there was a rich man. This would have made the Pharisees listen up for they were quite well to do. The first was the parable about the unjust steward who played loose and fast with the debts of the master who was about to fire him. He curried favor with the debtors by getting them a big discount. Jesus commended the steward's shrewdness with money and then he said, 
No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and despise and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. Now you might expect the Pharisees, those faithful and proper folks to nod their heads and say, exactly right. After all, they do try to serve God always, but this is how they react. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all this and they ridiculed or mocked him. So Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. This gives us a clue about who Jesus is preaching to every time he brings up wrongdoing around wealth. It might just be those Pharisees. They push back from Jesus' statement that they need to take good care to worship only God and never wealth. In their minds, God and money go hand in hand. To them, God loves them, and that's why they have money. It's all tangled together for them, as it might be for us too. We too are leaders and well off. We feel blessed in the respect of wealth. Jesus is speaking to us too. And you might be feeling internal resistance just like the Pharisees did. I know I do. And then Jesus tells us and the Pharisees one of those stories with a twist, the story of a poor man lying at a rich man's gate. Sometimes we hear this story called Lazarus and Dives, but that word Dives simply means rich man. Lazarus is a Hebrew name, which means God is my help. And truly God's help is all that Lazarus has as he slowly dies because the rich man doesn't help him. He's dressed like a king. He ate like one every single day. Did the rich man kick Lazarus? No. Did he beat him or drive him away? No. He simply never noticed him. He didn't think about him. To the rich man, Lazarus was like a tree or a rock, part of the landscape. It was as natural to him that he should live in luxury as it was for Lazarus to live in suffering at his gate. As I think about poor Lazarus at the gate of the rich man's house, I, th I think I've seen him before. Have you seen Lazarus? You can see poor Lazarus around our globe. My daughter Carolina saw him in Kenya, Africa, at a beautiful school that has an exchange program with the Westminster schools. She noticed that within the walls of the Kenyan school, everything was orderly and beautiful with children receiving a stellar education. But at their gates, she noticed every day, there were poor children looking longingly through the bars, wishing they could get an education like that. The children outside the gate captured her heart and she spent several years of her life working for orphans and poor villagers in Africa with those children in her mind. When I went with our mission team to Kolkata, India to meet the wonderful women at the Mahima homes who work to help children and young women who have been trafficked there, we were driving through the city one day. As cars and buses zoomed through the streets, I turned my head and I saw an electronics store with all kinds of modern gadgets and equipment for sale. Standing in front of the store was a small child, stark naked, dirty, and hungry. He had nothing 
and behind him that store full of fancy things, and my car sped right on by. He was a poor young Lazarus, one among millions. I've seen him here in Atlanta, lying on the steps of a building, wrapped on a blanket, trying to sleep. I've seen her in a little camp she put up in a public park, trying to have a place of her own. I've seen him asking for change as I walked to an Atlanta United game. All over our city now, we have needy people asking for help more and more and more since the pandemic hit. Have you noticed? We come to an intersection and we wait at the light. While we're in line, we lock eyes with a person holding a little brown cardboard sign that says, homeless, hungry, please help. And mostly, we cut our eyes away from them. I do this too. Sometimes I give something, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I sit there and try to think, what is the best thing to do? And then the light changes and I pass right on by. We say to ourselves, I'm afraid in this world to roll down my window. We might think, well, it's dangerous because of COVID to interact. Or we might lug them over and think, hmm, they look too clean and neat to be in need. Or I don't really know what they're gonna use my money for. They might not use it to eat or find shelter, but for drink or drugs. Or I might wonder what they did to be out here like this, probably, they did something bad. After all our rationalizations, we drive away from the poor man, but he's still there in my mind's eye and in yours too. And he will be there the next time you pass and the next, and it breaks my heart. I want to help. I'm not sure of the best way to do that. I would like to think that I would do better if there were a poor man right at my doorway, right in my side every day. Surely I would do better than the rich man in our story. I hope I would. But when we see the poor Lazarus folk in our city, we put up a wall of denial and judgment. We don't want to be made a fool of. We don't want to give to someone who would use it badly. We don't want to expose ourselves to danger. We know we've got what they need, but maybe the rich man in our parable felt just the same. I didn't get Lazarus into this trouble. I'm not a member of his family. It's not my job to fix this situation, right? And so day after day, the rich man and we walk on by. One thing we know about the rich man in our story is that he did nothing to help his own poor Lazarus. We know from other scripture that people in Jesus' day had some problems navigating matters of wealth and poverty. That's because there were two strains of thought in scripture about how to view the rich and the poor. One strain seems to say that God blesses those who are faithful and hardworking with wealth. As you can imagine, this was a very favorite theology with those who already had wealth. Proverbs 28:19 says, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. That verse seems to imply that if you are poor, you followed worthless pursuits. We know that several of the beloved people appointed by God to lead his people were people of means like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. People of faith who were not deep or nuanced thinkers decided it's easy to tell whom God favors, the rich, that's who. And thus it followed, if you were poor, 
You must have done something so wrong that God is punishing you with poverty. Those who were wealthy could congratulate themselves on God's approval for how could they be rich if God did not love them best? It reminds me of that bumper sticker I saw once that reads, God loves you in big letters and then in small letters, but I am his favorite. So the people of God could walk around their cities, towns, and villages and pride themselves on their most favored status if they were wealthy. They could easily spot those who were blessed and those who were not. So easy to tell, right? But the whole thing is more complicated than that. Remember that Elizabeth, Mary's relative, was barren even though she and her husband Zechariah were righteous before God and lived blamelessly, yet they had no children. And Elizabeth spoke after she was expecting John the Baptist of the disgrace she had endured among her people. People who were struggling could be condemned for secret sinfulness. After all, God blesses only those who are righteous. You remember the blind man whom Jesus healed in John 9. As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus' own disciples believed there must be sin behind his curse of blindness. But Jesus did not believe this. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. In other words, stop trying to tie sinfulness to affliction and poverty. All through his ministry, Jesus steadily worked to disrupt the idea that wealth means God's favor and being poor or ill means God does not show favor. Jesus' own public ministry began with this scripture from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Jesus worked through his ministry to get his listeners to let go of the idea that the poor are less valued in God's eyes. He explicitly said in his Beatitudes, blessed are the poor. He singled out for praise the widow who gave her small coins out of her poverty. He took on the idea that God loves only the rich so many times. I only had time to choose a few, but I know now you'll keep your eyes open for more. The Pharisees held tightly to the idea that their wealth and God's favor went hand in hand. And we sometimes have that same tunnel vision. For example, the prosperity gospel movement has flourished by pairing the ideas that God loves best and blesses most those who are wealthy. It claims that God rewards belief and greater faith with upturns in wealth and health. Often this can have everything to do with sending in a generous donation to a prosperity gospel preacher. We've all seen it. And it truly is a perversion of the true good news of the gospel. To hold that view, you have to ignore a good bit of the Bible and you have to think of God as a sort of Coke machine who gives out prizes when we put in effort. But it's not as easy as that to pin wealth to blessing and poverty to the disapproval of God. We saw in 2008 and during this pandemic year that money can be fleeting and it can run out like water. We had members then and now who lost jobs, homes, marriages, all their savings or their portfolio that was supposed to make the money to support their retirement. 
We had members living in their cars, on sofas of friends or relatives. We had members who had to move out of state to find work. If you did not have friends or relatives who took such a hard hit, you are one of the rare few. So the idea that God favors the righteous with wealth and punishes the poor by withholding it, we know better than that. Financial hardship is like rain that falls on the just and the unjust. It's like weather. It can and does happen to us all. You and I know that money comes and goes, but that the love and grace of God are forever. Think about it. God's best beloved son, Jesus, had no place to lay his head. He said so. For the first two years of his life, he was a refugee child fleeing Herod in Egypt. And do you remember that when Jesus wanted to tell a little parable about whose face was on a coin, he had to ask someone for a coin because why? His pockets were empty. All Jesus owned was his clothing, which was divided by his ex executioners. And think of the apostle Paul. He worked for his living, making tents. He was chased out of town, stoned, put in jail, and had a thorn in the flesh, a secret illness that he begged God to take from him. Do we really think that God did not value or bless Paul or Jesus? No, we know God loved and valued both of them. If the good news of the gospel can be reduced to the prosperity gospel, then it makes a total nonsense of Jesus and Paul who are at the center of our Bible and our faith. God does not only value the wealthy or powerful. Let's turn back to the rich man who walked by Lazarus every day until he died. Because Jesus next takes us behind the scenes to what happens after. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. The Pharisees would have been uncomfortable hearing about where Lazarus ended up. That's not fair, they would have thought. Surely the wealthy man deserves to be with Abraham most of all, being most blessed. Why does this wretched poor man get the privilege of being with Abraham? And not only that, but truly embraced by Abraham, the father of them all in the faith. They were getting a reminder that rich or poor, there is an end to this life for all of us and no privilege in the afterlife. But it gets worse. The rich man is not just buried, he is in hell. In Hades, where the rich man was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. These are certainly not the accommodations that the rich man expected. And what is the first thing he says? Does he say, I'm heartily sorry for the callous way I treated you in life as you suffered at my gate? Does he say, Father Abraham, I haven't been a credit to you or to our faith, so I am justly separated from you. Does he beg for forgiveness? No. Here is the first thing he says. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. The first thing he thinks of is ordering around both Abraham and Lazarus for his greater comfort and benefit. He assumes he still has the power to command. He thinks of getting what he wants right now. He wants instant help from the very man he killed 
with neglect. Abraham answers for Lazarus. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed. Lots to notice here. First of all, there is reversal here from the way things were in their lifetimes on earth. Abraham tells the rich man, you had your good things in your lifetime and you gave Lazarus hell. So all of that is reversed now. He has been rescued and now you are suffering. And further, Abraham says, that's the way it is forever. There is a chasm between us. No travel is possible. No reversal is going to happen. You're stuck where you are. And there is no way for Lazarus to lose the comfort and rescue he now enjoys. Even if I would allow you to use him as your servant, Abraham says, and I won't allow it, he cannot leave paradise and my side. This is where Lazarus belongs forever. Jesus is telling the Pharisees and us, there comes a time when time is up. There comes an end to life and then judgment. And what you doled out in your lifetime is likely to be what you get at your judgment. It reminds me of the story about the rich man who died and went to heaven. St. Peter welcomed him in and took him past the pearly gates into the holy city. They passed through a street of glorious mansions, each one grander than the last, and the rich man expected for them to turn and enter one of these, but St. Peter kept walking. The rich man was a bit perturbed. They passed through a street of simpler homes, and the rich man thought, surely my home will be here at least. But St. Peter kept walking. At last they reached a street of very basic little homes to the rich man's eyes, not much more than shacks. And St. Peter brought him to the door of one of these. The rich man said, don't you know who I am? I deserve a better heavenly home than this. And St. Peter said, we did the best we could with what you set up. The rich man learns too late that the way he treated others who were needy really mattered. He was rich toward himself, stingy toward others and toward God. The Pharisees would have heard all this with horror. But then Jesus finishes his parable with something they think they understand. There was precedent in their times for a person to end stories about the afterlife to ask if they couldn't do someone for something for someone still alive. The gods usually grant this kind of request, sort of like the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. Let's see if Jesus has a similar twist for them. The rich man said, then Father Abraham, I beg you to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. Jesus is telling the Pharisees and us, you will not be allowed to send Lazarus to try to work on your brothers. They already know, just as you did, everything in scripture already. They already know, just as you did, the right way to treat those who are needy, sick, and suffering. You just didn't do it. And it was important for you to get this right while you were alive. The rich man tries one last time to order Father Abraham 
and Lazarus around. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now this last word from Abraham has quite a strange resonance because by the end of this gospel, there indeed will be someone who comes back from the dead, Jesus himself. And will the Pharisees believe him then? We are left up in the air. Surely some Pharisees did see and believe and turn it around, but now we know where they will go if they do not begin to treat the poor as God wants them to. Something I noticed as I studied this parable, why do we never hear Lazarus speak? We don't hear his words either at the rich man's gate or while he is in heaven with Father Abraham. What does that mean? Why would he not have a voice of his own? Father Abraham defends and speaks for Lazarus. He keeps the rich man from manipulating him. Lazarus is now at rest. He does not have to exert himself for the rich man or be ordered around by him anymore. God himself through Father Abraham keeps and defends and speaks for him. The man with no voice of his own in life has God speaking for him forever. Now Jesus has spoken to us in this parable telling us that we have to wake up and see the poor all around us, that it matters how we treat them. There comes a time when time's up and it's too late to make things right. But here is the good news. We still have time. We have time to treat other people to heaven instead of hell. We can do it in our city and around the world. Our folks in local and global ministry make it possible for us to bless people by relieving their suffering and hunger, especially vulnerable children. Our primary partners that deal with food insecurity here in town are Urban Recipe, Nicholas House, Atlanta Mission, the Salvation Army, Covenant House, and the Seeds of Hope. Internationally, we plant gardens in Africa with those seeds of hope and we help to feed hungry people in India and here at home during the pandemic. If one of your points of hesitation is that you're not sure if your gift will be put to good use, you need never worry about giving to these ministries. There is still time to give, to live the life Jesus has in mind for us and for the poor at our gates. During this pandemic, we saw examples of those who lived like the rich man as people responded to pressure by hoarding or fighting over resources. And then we also saw people like this very good man in Houston, Texas, Jim Mackingvale, or as he is commonly known, Mattress Mac. He owns Houston's largest furniture store and he's opened it for years to those in need and natural disasters like hurricanes and floods and most recently, in that terrible deep freeze they had this past winter in Texas. Mattress Mac has become such a blessing to his employees, his community, and his neighbors in need. Let's watch. I think it's important to understand that life is not about take, 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 it's about give too. The line stretched around the building to get a warm meal inside. Part of my obligation is to set an example for those younger business people out there that this is part of our obligation is to help out those less fortunate than us. My father 
was a giver even when he didn't have money to give. So he taught me that the essence of living is giving and that's part of what I do. Folks, if you know of a family with a special situation that could use a new house full of furniture, please write to me, Mac, at Gallery Furnitures. One of these days I'm gonna leave this world and when I go up there and see the creator, whoever he or she may be, they're not gonna ask me how much money did you make, they will ask me instead how much of a difference did you make. So to me, that's an obligation. One of the things that Mattress Mac is best known for is his reaction to Hurricane Harvey. Jim McAvell, he opened his door, the doors of his store to victims of Hurricane Harvey. You know, Hurricane Harvey uh, hit and um, we all got through it together. Sorry about what you guys went through. We're gonna help you with the house full of furniture here and Thank hope you. things get better for you. One thing you'll hear Mattress Mac say frequently is that he's part capitalist, part social worker. In our warehouse, uh, we've got a range of people of all different backgrounds who I grew up working with from the time I was 13. What's up, fellas? How are y'all? All of the employees who work in the warehouse are welcome to free breakfast, free lunch, free dinner. And here we have our gym where everyone can come and work out completely for free while they're on the clock. We now also have a preschool that's 100% free, a high school that's completely free, and then also a trade school for adults. We currently have 146 high school students and 55 adults that join us in the evening for trade classes. We have pre-K three and pre-K four. We're meeting some of our zero to four year olds who are here. We need to keep in mind, this is still a furniture store. It has now evolved into a one-stop shop community center that happens to sell furniture. I want to leave you with Mac as the perfect antidote to the rich man in our parable. Mac shows the joyful life a person can live when living is giving. He loves the life, life, the life that God gave him and he loves to share with those in need. And the joy of it is always so visible in his face and in his life. Our scripture lets us know, friends, beyond any doubt, now is the time to make things right for the poor around us. Now is the time for us to share what we have with those in need. Now is the time to be expansive and rich toward the poor and God. Now is the time to show that living is giving. Let's pray together now. Lord, help us to know what time it is. Lead us to the poor men, women, and children at our gates, people we see every day. Help us to not just pass by. Melt our hearts and open our hands so that we can know the joy of helping others to thrive and live the good life here on earth. Help us to treat others to heaven here and now. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.